Before I get into this week's conversation, I want to explain what happens when you subscribe to the Crude Magazine Patreon. With your help, I'm able to spend more and more time finding and researching podcast guests. The research is important because it allows me to come to each conversation prepared with knowledge of my guests as well as an understanding of what they do. Eventually, it would be great to travel for conversations that couldn't happen otherwise. With your help, I'm also able to pay podcast production expenses, which includes the software and the hardware needed to record and edit each episode. So if you enjoy these conversations, you can subscribe at www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. That's patreon.com slash crude magazine. And pick the subscription tier that works for you. Okay. On to this week's episode. In this one, I have a conversation with professional snowboarder and Olympian Rosie Mancari. Rosie began snowboarding at Alieska Resort in Girdwood, Alaska at three years old. At 15, she was competing in local competitions. And at 17, she moved out of state to begin training full-time. Her sport is border cross, probably the closest discipline in snowboarding to a contact sport. Riders race down a course of bank turns, rollers, drops, and jumps at high speeds. As you might imagine, the accidental and also purposeful shove or bump into is not uncommon. Okay, time to give the Crude Company men a shout out. These are the people who have subscribed to the Crude Patreon for $50 or more. Trina Duber, Seward Brewing Company, Crystal Liska, Derek Adolph, Blue and Gold Board Shop, Sharon Liska, Carly Mortensen, and Alaska Surf Adventures. Thank you to all the Patreon subscribers. This podcast wouldn't be possible without you. Back to Rosie Mancari. In 2018, Rosie tore both of her Achilles tendons during practice at the Winter Olympics in Pyeongchang, South Korea. Three infections and eight surgeries later brings us to where she is now. Daily rehab. If you've ever been badly injured, then you know that rehabbing an injury correctly takes patience. Otherwise, you run the risk of injuring it again and having to start the surgery rehab process over. Rosie is all too familiar with this process. She's been injured before and knows what it takes to get back on her board. She understands the importance of patience to physical and mental health and that being happy always takes precedence over her athletic career. So here she is, Rosie Mancari. This red light right here, it means we're recording. Okay, fired up. Crude conversations. Listen more, then you talk. Go to work! There we go. Okay, welcome to the show, Rosie. Thanks for having me. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm a little tired from the day, but ready to go. And where are you calling from right now? Um, I'm in Salt Lake City. And you said you were tired from... <laughs> um, I'm down here training at our training facility, so uh, just long hours of dry land down here. <laughs> and how long have you been there doing that? I, I originally came down in January. Um, I was kind of just 
following up with more physical therapy down here because we have such good access to so many doctors and physical therapists and all that stuff down here. And so I came down to finish out my rehab and um, then just kind of decided to stay out through the summer and really get in the best shape I could before returning to competition. And um, in the past, I've been based out of here for the winter just because it's an easier like central hub in the winter. But um, yeah, so I've, I've kind of been here a lot longer than anticipated, but I like it. So, you know, I have this question. I feel like this happens pretty often in the podcast where I have a question that I have coming later in my notes, but it gets broached earlier on. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. You mentioned rehab and your injuries. You weren't able to compete in the 2018 Winter Olympics because of an injury. What happened there? Um, so I made the Olympic team and made it all the way to Korea and everything. And then uh, we always get two training days before we compete at the Olympics. So on my first training day, um, just on one of my practice runs, I like came into a feature going way too fast at was kind of unanticipated the wind was really bad so I think get that kind of attributed to the speed levels um and I ended up crashing on a feature and it really wasn't a bad fall considering the sport that I do and how hard we do crash um but it was just a kind of unlucky like positioning and I ended up tearing both my Achilles and uh so that took me out of competition obviously um but I've been rehabbing that ever since. So um, we're at, I don't know, geez, probably close to like 20-ish months and hopefully getting back to it all soon. And there were surgeries involved, right? A lot of surgeries, more than anybody could have ever anticipated, unfortunately. Um, so the doctor that I I flew from Korea to Colorado because uh, – for the certain doctor, Dr. Clanton, who has like this new procedure that is meant to get you back. It's for athletes and meant to get you back into athletics way faster than a normal Achilles procedure. Mm -hmm. And um, so I went and saw him, had the repair. Everything was looking good. It obviously was a pretty hard few months because both my feet were out of commission, but um, dealt with it. And then I got out of the boots, like on schedule and transferred into shoes and almost immediately upon doing the like transfer into shoes I retore my left Achilles like doing nothing that I shouldn't have or whatever like I was literally standing still and it repopped and so I got that fixed and a retear is a lot harder because even in the initial surgery they're I mean like just trying to get all the your own tissue that they can possibly and then when you re-tear it just kind of blows all those chances so they had to put a graft in um to repair it and then it just was never healing like I've, I've had quite a few surgeries in my life and I know my body pretty well and it I just never was healing like I wanted it to and I expressed like I expressed that to doctors and everything, and they kind of just blamed it all on the retear. And then a few months went by, and just wasn't feeling good. And I ended up like this, like it's kind of gross. I'm sorry, but this like volcano kind of formed on the side of my scar, so like not right on the scar, but on the side. And it started like 
spewing out like <laughs> gross yellow stuff. And um, finally, I reached out to a infectious disease doctor and I was like, something's wrong with me. Like, I'm not healing. Weird stuff's coming out of like holes that are just creating in my body. And mm -hmm. I ended up having three different infections in my left ankle. Um, and so then from there, it took five clean out surgeries to get everything out and I had a pick line in my arm so I was administering like my own antibiotics pretty much directly into my heart for like three months and then from there I was totally fine and I was super lucky that the infection didn't affect the actual Achilles very much so it was just all the tissue around the Achilles wasn't healing um so that put me into all the way into last December um so coming up on a year, but my left Achilles was basically in a boot for like 10 months. So that put me pretty far behind on my physical therapy and all of that. And then of course I was in the meantime trying to keep like rehab my right one and get it strong at the correct pace while my left one was still going through surgeries and everything. Um, so being down here in Utah just seemed like the best option uh, where I had all the access to doctors and physical therapists that I needed and uh, get me back on track. So you said that both of your Achilles were blown. So at, at a certain point, both of your legs are injured. How do you go about rehabbing it when you can't even walk? Um, it was a pretty long process. I, I mean, <clears throat> the amazing thing about this new procedure that they did on me was a normal Achilles. You don't, you aren't even weight bearing for like two to four weeks. And I woke up out of surgery and they had me stand up. It was insane. Like, <laughs> I mean, you seriously have the most baby deer legs ever, mm -hmm. but, um, they have you stand up immediately. So, um, I was in a wheelchair and my mom was there for me with all my surgeries and, um, literally did everything for me like I couldn't even go to the bathroom by myself because you like I could put like 10% weight through my feet so I mean you're using your arms for everything um so it was definitely a challenge that's for sure but uh we may do and I luckily wasn't in a wheelchair too long um within like a few weeks I was like fairly uh could use a decent amount of my body weight and so I was on crutches pretty fast but it was a lot of time in a bed that's for sure <laughs> especially going from like the Olympics to bedridden for a lot of time it was a hard wake-up call that's for sure for sure you know um something that I've recognized having been in snowboarding and even just seeing how other athletes kind of work through injuries is that working through an injury or injuries in your case is a skill. You have to have patience. You have to, um, you know, go through the entire process. How has that been for you? I think I'm definitely thankful that I've had a few other injuries before this one, as silly as that sounds. And I'm thankful I'm, I was a little older because I tore my ACL at 18 and I feel like that was honestly harder for me than a double Achilles just because it was my first major like or like orthopedic surgery and I didn't necessarily know how to handle it 
and like returning to sport was really hard for me. It was a really big mental challenge. And going into this, like, I think I just had such a good attitude of like, I know that the body is amazing and I know I'll get back to whatever I like I need to do. And if I don't, for whatever reason, I'll find something else that they're capable of. So I think it's, it's really, I think a lot of people have said like, how did you even handle that? And I'm like, well, you don't really have a choice but to be optimistic about it and like continue on because otherwise you're just going to be miserable. So it definitely is a whole entire mind state that you have to be in. And I'm still in, which is crazy to me. <laughs> um, most of the time when you get injured, it's like, okay, get through this for six months and then you'll be like back to doing some stuff. And I'm still introducing like new exercises and stuff where like I've had to hold back for 20 months. Um, and it's crazy. It really is. But I, I just look at it like I have no choice but to be optimistic because what's it going to do for me if I'm not? That's a really good mentality to stay positive. I think yeah. that there's a lot of uh, people that forget to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it, it can get the best of you quickly. And I mean, I'm sounding really like optimistic and positive and strong right now, but I've definitely, I've gone through some hard times. That's for sure. It's, it's definitely not a hundred percent of the time, but as long as at the end of the day, you come out with that like mindset, I think that's what's most important. There's definitely dark times for sure. But I mean, you get, you get back to the, the bright side. So those dark times, what did those look like? Does any of them come to mind? I mean, I literally went through a phase, to be completely honest, where I cried like every single day. And it wasn't like for any reason. It was more like just frustration. Like I'm so used to being active and doing going out and mountain biking or wake surfing or hiking or even like simple things like camping with my friends or whatever. And now all of a sudden I have all these limitations of I'm like, well, are there going to be uneven rocks? It's like, like it's just silly things where you can't go live like your normal life. And I mean, that's so hard for that like extended period of time. And then also like you have to get to the point as a professional athlete where you weigh kind of what you're doing to your body to the like actual outcome and say like, is it worth it? And so like for me, I'm like, okay, I tore both my Achilles. One of them has had like eight surgeries now. Like do I keep snowboarding and risk the chance of doing it all over again? Like there is a chance that I can get back out there and re-tear it. And is that worth like my next... 60 to 80 years of life of like having to deal with those repercussions kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it's easy to get lost in that, but then once you get a, like for me, I got to go snowboarding like four times this past spring when I finally was like at a point where I was healthy enough, but and there was a tiny bit of snow left here in Utah and I got to go snowboarding like four times. And as soon as I got a taste of that, like my life was so much better because I was like, okay, I know why I, ca I can remember why I love this. I can remember why I do this and everything's worth it no matter what that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So, um, but it is easy to get lost in kind of those negative and like question everything thoughts. Um, but like I said, at the end of the day, it's just, you got to come out on the bright side. What was that first day like? 
being back on the snow? It was kind of crazy. So I was hearing, it was kind of lucky that I was here in Utah because Snowbird here was open through like the 4th of July. Um, so I really wasn't ready to go in the actual season, but because they were open so late, I could go in like May and June. And uh, so my ideal like day I was going out with one of my coaches the first day and in my head I was like okay I'm gonna get up there super early and hit some super nice groomers because I don't want any chatter on my ankles I just want to take it nice and easy and we had like so much planning lined up for this like one huge day of me returning to snow like 15 months after my initial injury Mm -hmm. and it dumped like 17 inches that that (laughs) night (laughs) obviously there was no perfect groomers or anything and my coach called me that that morning and he's like so do you want to go do you want to bail like the lifts aren't even open yet they're like digging everything out and I was like we have to go like I have to go snowboarding we have to go and so my whole perfect plan kind of went out the window which was scary for me because the doctors like my situation is so unique the doctors can't tell like nobody's ever had this situation like me before it's not like an acl where they're like well these hundreds of thousands of other of athletes have torn their acl this is their like comeback result or whatever Mm -hmm. so they're like you could get on snow and be in so much pain and have to walk down the mountain or you could get on snow and it could be totally fine so i had no idea what to expect and so we got up there for a powder day essentially and i strapped on my board and took off and it was definitely like bumpy and not the perfect groomers I expected but my ankles I literally I kid you not could not even tell that I ever had surgery it was the craziest thing um it was so relieving I think because I could actually snowboard it without any worry and just actually enjoy it and I was glad to have my coach there because (laughs) he was actually like keeping me in line because I just wanted to like take off like it's like a dog that had been cooped up in a house for a year and like finally got to see a big park. And <laughs> just like I just wanted to go nuts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh yeah, so my like perfect return to snow day was nothing like I imagined, but it was everything I could have hoped for. So I got a few more days in like that after and before the season ended. And it really just kind of gave me the fuel to the fire that I needed for the summer of training because it really is just like a put your head down and do the work and it's not necessarily fun. And so um, I think it would have been very hard without having those few days to kind of motivate me and remind me just because it's all so, so far away. But um, I'm really thankful that I, I got to go ride. I always have this idea of like small goals, right? Yeah. So if you if you look at the end result... I think it's probably really easy if you're just focusing on the goal. It's really easy to get discouraged, right? Absolutely. But if you're looking at uh, small goals and small increments of improvement, you can reach that final goal. In your situation, it'll be the Winter Games Yeah. in 2022. Yes. What do your small goals look like? I mean, literally for this summer, it's been like, okay, 
jump on a box or like <laughs> reintroduce plyometrics like literally that small like okay jump on a bigger box that kind of thing like that's what I've had to get through this summer because without all that like I won't even be able to return to competition but now that I've gone through all of that it's really getting back on snow and slowly working into a course um I guess we haven't even really talked about what I do I race snowboard cross (laughs) um (laughs) so (laughs) getting back into a course and slowly introducing all those things so like I mean my first goal is going to be to get essentially like two weeks worth of free riding just going out and riding controlled um all over the mountain and then slowly work my way into start sections and like roller sections and then from there reintroduce jumps um while jumps aren't like as far as my achilles go a concern it's just the least controlled part of our sport so i mean anything can happen um as far as crashing wise goes so that's the last thing they let me introduce um so then tackling jumps and then i mean hopefully early this winter reintroduce competition and it'll be really I think hard for me not to have mixed expectations about reintroducing competition because I want to go like I know I'm strong and I know I still have what it takes to get good results but I think I also have to be very realistic if I now haven't raced in two years um so I think setting small goals there of I mean being very realistic of what I expect in results. Um, but we have the Olympic test event this winter, which is basically like two years ahead of time. They just have host a competition in the next Olympic venue to basically show that they know how to run the competition. And that's like my big goal for this season while my little goals are leading up to is to hopefully compete at that because it's obviously, um, really good to get that under your belt and be familiar with where the games are it just kind of gives you that tiny little leg up and a little bit more confidence going into the games so I think that's kind of my little to big goals just within this season and then obviously another bigger goal outside of all that is fully returning back to competition in another Olympics Mm -hmm. do you think that your um your outlook or your mindset has changed throughout your injury? Like if you were to look at it in steps, it would look something like maybe one, the initial injury, two, the surgery, three, the rehab. Um, yeah, I think I'm trying like, it's hard to, it's like been honestly such a long process now. It's, kind of mind-blowing and it all blurs together (laughs) um Mm -hmm. but yeah I think I've had I never expected to go through everything that I did so that was quite a curveball for sure um but I think for the most part I've done fairly well like it would have been very easy for me to give up at any point (laughs) um and just continue on with I like to call it real life I, my snowboarding <laughs> is like my fake uh, dream life <laughs> um <laughs> with continue on with real life but um I've really tried to like persevere and I have 
like such an opportunity that so many people don't get in life. And I just constantly remind myself that it would kind of be silly not to go do it if I can when it's such a unique experience. Was there anything that kind of kept you going? You know, you mentioned those dark times throughout this entire process of therapy. Was it possibly self-determination, friends, family? I think a lot of all of it, really. I mean, I have a really good support group within friends and family, but also I just have this like (laughs) personal outlook, I think, on life where I feel like everybody's in such a rush to like get everything done and then they end up being miserable. And um, I just like really want to do what I can at this time and enjoy it. And at this time, I love snowboarding and I have the opportunity to travel the world and compete among the best and represent my like home state and country. And it's, it's just such an opportunity. And I just don't see why I would give that up. And I think that really like keeps me persevering because Like I said, so many other people don't have the opportunity and I want to take advantage of it. You know, something that I I feel like I mention on the podcast pretty often is the idea of kind of material possessions versus like experiences, right? Yeah. And so um, I'm sure listeners are sick of hearing me say this, but (laughs) (laughs) it was such a... uh, It was such a big epiphany for me when I came to it however long ago. But the analogy is, you know, me sitting on my deathbed and looking back on my life and being proud of the things that either I did or that I accomplished. And I could either be happy with the experience that I had or the material possessions that I bought. So I can't imagine myself ever being like, Oh, God, I'm so freaking glad I bought that 2019 Ford Raptor. Yeah, absolutely. You know, like when you look back on your life, I bet you are going to be extremely stoked that you persevered during this time of of adversity and injury. Yeah, and I definitely do have that outlook, that same outlook, like... I could really care less about material things, probably to like a fault at some point. (laughs) But uh, yeah, it's just, I don't even know when it really occurred. I think it's like, I think it really hit me when all the people that I went to high school with started graduating college. That freaked me out. Um, I take college classes part-time online, so I'm not like completely... um, not doing that but it freaked me out when like everybody I went to high school with all of a sudden was graduating college and like going to grad school or getting real jobs and I was like oh my god I'm just snowboarding like what am I doing with my life and um like but as I talked more and more to those people that decided on like doing that path it was it was just one of those things that I realized where I'm like okay they're no happier than me we're both happy in doing what we're currently doing in life and that's going to be there when I'm ready to go do that. It's not something that all of a sudden at 25 I can't go do or 30 I can't go do or 40 I can't go do. It's um I think I constantly have to remind myself of that and and 
I might look at those people and be jealous that they're completely done with school and making good money and have a house and have a family or whatever. But then they look at me and are jealous of the fact that I still get to travel the world and snowboard, I mean, all winter and lots of the summer too. Um, So it's just kind of like perspective and I have to constantly think that, think about that. Um, But it is scary sometimes, definitely taking like an alternate route to compare it to like what a lot of society says is right. So did making it to the U.S. ski and snowboard team, did you feel a little vindicated? Yeah, a little. Um, So I first made the team, I think, when I was... 21 um so at that point like I had already been out of school for three like out of high school for three years and like really chasing it and it got to a point where I did tell myself I was like if I don't get these specific results and prove this to myself like it's not worth chasing and uh, luckily I'm very competitive even with myself and I went out and got those results and made the team and all of that and it definitely like puts things into perspective. Um, but even, I mean, being on the national team doesn't necessarily, it's hard. It's, I'm not going to say mean anything to anybody, but like a lot of people don't even know what my sport is. Unfortunately, (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, Oh, I can be in border cross. You're like, what? Um, so, (laughs) so it's still hard. But, uh, and then everybody, I I mean, it's not a bad thing, but everybody is just like, oh, so are you going to the Olympics? Like, they don't understand that we have a full circuit that we travel every single winter and, like, you can, like, that means almost more to us than the Olympics because the Olympics is just one race, whereas we go head-to-head with all the same competitors all winter and, like, proving ourselves there and being more consistent means so much to us as athletes and actually like proving ourselves where one little unlucky thing at the Olympics can end that for you. But a lot of like people that don't necessarily understand how the actual sport works just kind of base everything off of the Olympics. So like even when I made the national team, they're like, oh, so does this mean you're going to the Olympics? I'm like, no, we're so far from there. <laughs> um, and then people just seem disappointed again. <laughs> so it's just that whole like just people don't necessarily understand the whole entirety of the sport, which um, is hard. But there's it's much more complex than just the Olympics. You said that you got those results. What were those results that you were looking for? Um, and I think you were talking about them in reference to goals. Like, I need to meet these goals. Yeah. So at that time, I wasn't even um, on the World Cup circuit, which is like our top tier circuit. I was on a lower level circuit just within North America, the NORAM circuit. And um, you have to win that overall title for the NORAM circuit in order to earn a World Cup spot. And I basically just put out and was determined to win that overall title. Um and which was like kind of a hefty goal looking back at it because I was getting like consistent like fourths through eighths but I definitely was not winning every race which is essentially like what you have to do um to win that overall title Mm -hmm. and um but I mean I made it happen and I made the national team and then I ended up 
earning that World Cup spot, which is that jump in our sport that is, like, unprecedented to anything else because the Noram circuit is, like, it's just an introductory to the sport, essentially, and then you get on the World Cup circuit, and it's the real deal. It's, like, what you were doing on, like, steroids. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. So it's definitely a huge jump, and moving to the World Cup circuits, I mean, I went from winning every Noram to getting dead last in every World Cup. It, like, really puts you in your place. <laughs> um, but um, and it just takes experience. Our sport's a lot about experience and knowing what to do when, around what people, in what conditions. And every course that we show up to is a new course that we've never seen. And so you have very limited time to learn it and do it and be the best at it and it's just totally an experience thing and so it took a few years on the world cup circuit to even get to the point where i felt comfortable making goals of like okay i need to start getting these results and once i did that um i ended up on the b team because i i initially was on the d team the developmental team and um i made the b team so it, it really does seem like I work best when I set personal goals for myself and tell myself, like, this is what you're going to do or you need to rethink everything. And that freaks me out and scares me. So I go and do it. <laughs> yeah. You know, something that I feel like there's a story behind this and I hope I'm right, but I guess I could be wrong. <laughs> but what was it like making it onto the U.S. ski and snowboard team. Like when you first heard, like what was what was your reaction? What did you do after either that phone call or someone told you? Um, I think so. Like um, there's like guidelines set out, like written down. So basically saying what you have to do to make the team. So as soon as I won the overall title, like I knew I would be nominated to the team. Mm-hmm. Um. But it really was just, like, I don't think there's a specific, like, moment, but I think it was just relief because I had worked so hard that winter. I broke my wrist in the middle of the winter and, like, continued racing with a broken wrist to, like, I was like, I'm not stopping now. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to win all these races with a broken wrist. Like, um, and... Yeah, I think it was just kind of relief. And at that time, I was working with a private coach um, that I had worked with a few years before, but with a team. And the team kind of fell apart. And I told him, I was like, listen, I'm going to do this big. Like, I and I want you there. Like, I trust you the most that you can get me there. So I kind of traveled mostly with, like, a private coach that winter and a couple other athletes but it was like a very small, intimate group. And um, I think it was mostly just like the fact that he took that time out to travel with me um, (laughs) and he believed in me. And I think that was really rewarding at the end because we spent a lot of time together. And I, at that point, was like growing a lot as an athlete and had a lot of meltdowns and he dealt with them all. (laughs) um, (laughs) I think I was just more than anything thankful that uh, I had him helping me and relief that it all paid off because I put a lot like into that season specifically to 
make that jump from like mediocre to trying to prove I was the best and I deserved to be on the team. You know, one thing that I found interesting about being on the team is that even though you're on the team, you're still responsible for paying your own way. And you do this by fundraising, right? Yeah, primarily. Um, so the way the team works is there's A team, B team, and D team. D team basically just gets to like say they're on the team. They get some swag and stuff like that. Um, <clears throat> B team, we actually receive coaching. So the A and B team travel together and we receive coaching from the national team, which was super helpful because like I said, I was toting around a personal coach before. <laughs> um, so you can imagine that that helps my expenses a lot. Um, mm -hmm. But as far as like travel and all that goes, that's on me. Um, and so it definitely is a huge stress factor, which is unfortunate because obviously as an athlete, you want to be focused on your athletic performance, not figuring out like how you're going to fly to the next race or whatever. Um, and so, yeah, I found a few ways to kind of work with that and make it possible and in the summer I always work as much as I possibly can um, as hard as it is with our like crazy training schedules and I always seem to find an employer that works with my schedules of leaving for a few weeks in the summer for camps or whatever last summer I was so lucky I worked for one of my sponsors Dr. Two and he literally because I thought I was like healthy <laughs> and then I ended up leaving like once a month for a surgery and he would just let me leave and let me come back <laughs> and like most of the time I couldn't walk and all of that stuff so I've been really lucky with like employers um being really flexible with me um but then as far as fundraising goes in the past I've done like a huge fundraiser garage sale um that brings in a decent amount of money and then I do a rally me, which is like a GoFundMe, but specifically for athletes. And um, once again, I've been super lucky to have a really strong community around me as far as that goes. And that's always been really successful in the past. Um, I haven't done one yet this year because everything's just so up in the air about what this season will really consist of. And um, even though I have goals of competing, I'm not entirely sure what it will until and I feel bad asking for help when I don't I don't have definitive answers even though everybody's like well Rosie you're still gonna be like training and out snowboarding and all that you can still fundraise but I have this like I don't know weird guilt in me about it so hopefully after this October camp I'll have a better idea of um my fundraising and all of that but yeah it's really it it really is stressful um but I've been lucky to have a good support system around me um that makes it happen so you know i wrote this down um as i was you know doing my research on you and i thought it was it was such a crazy concept to me because people who watch the olympics this is probably the absolute last thing that comes into their mind and that is you were fundraising to go to the olympics yeah yeah it's i think it's kind of come to light a little bit more but like people have the biggest misconception about it i think just because they see like 
football players making millions and millions of dollars and stuff like that. They associate that level of athletics on the it's all the same and it's so not the same. Um, I'm paying so much money to get there essentially. Um, and I feel like I saw a story about this a while ago. I think it was like two summers Olympics ago where a bunch of the gymnasts families came out talking about how they like like pull down a mortgage on their house or like refinance their houses and stuff like that in order to pay for all of their girls training to get to the Olympics and they would like it like blew up all over the place but it's such a reality for so many athletes um unfortunately America is the worst country as far as that goes um pretty much all other countries all their national teams are funded we're the only country that isn't supported by the government Really? Yeah. So, um, I mean, I could go become Canadian real quick and get some funding. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And that also has been a thing that athletes have done. Like, uh, in Sochi, uh, we had a, like, giant slalom and slalom snowboarder that raced for America for a lot of years and wasn't getting any support and married a Russian and went and won Russia two gold medals. No way. Yeah. That's just the, like, hard, sad truth is, um, I mean, they do do as much as they can for us. I mean, we have a lot of trustees and donors and stuff that support U.S. skiing and snowboarding, but, um unfortunately that goes to just a lot of other costs and um there's not enough to go around so (laughs) yeah that's i mean this is brand new to me you know i had no idea that any olympic athlete would have to do something like fundraise in order to to be there you know among the like all of the extravagance that is the olympics you know yeah I mean, I would say, like, pretty confidently that every single person on my team, even if they're funded, meaning they get their flights bought and everything, like, it's always a struggle for money. Mm -hmm. Especially, like I said, in a sport where most people don't even know what it is. Um, (laughs) It's it's definitely hard because we're not getting airtime in the U.S. None of our races are even in the U.S. Most of our circuit is in Europe, and in Europe, it's pretty popular and those snowboard athletes are like our nfl players they're superstars um but it's just a whole different like setting for us and so it's pretty hard i mean i'm not very good at selling myself in general but it's even harder when you do go ask for help and they're like we don't even know what you do like what is that (laughs) and i'm like okay (laughs) So it's definitely, I definitely could have picked something a little bit more popular. That would have been helpful for me. But, um, <laughs> and like the half pipe and slope style riders have it a little better because all their circuits are in the U.S. So they actually air them on TV and like people can actually go to them that like use the companies in the U.S. But we're in a whole different like market of people in Europe. It's kind of, it's a weird situation. When you're talking to somebody about what you do, when you, they don't know what border cross is, how do you explain it to them? 
I usually ask if they know what motocross is first because that's the easiest way to describe it is like it's motocross but on a snowboard um and then if they don't <laughs> if they don't know what motocross is then I'm like all right well it's like a big track down the mountain we all start at the same time we go over jumps and turns and first one to the finish line first wins kind of thing um and that usually gets them on track of what I'm talking about. <laughs> Out of all of the disciplines in snowboarding, I would say that border cross is probably the one closest to a contact sport. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, and that's the other funny thing is that like sometimes you'll describe or you'll be like, I'm a border cross athlete. And they're like, oh, what's that? And then you start telling them, they're like, oh, that's my favorite one. <laughs> <laughs> and you get that a lot of like, like in X Games, it was the most watched uh, event and they pulled it. <laughs> and like people love watching it. It's just not really a prominent sport in the U.S., unfortunately. Um but people love it, and it's for that reason. It's like you can tell you get adrenaline from watching it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not just something that you watch and it's super impressive. Like half pipe, you're like, holy crap! Like I could never do that, and that's super impressive. But like watching border cross, you actually get like adrenaline for the people on the TV or whatever. Um, and so people do love it, but it's just a hard event to watch and like in real life, um, unfortunately. To give a frame of reference to listeners, border cross is when, say, you and three to five other riders are racing down a course of bank turns, rollers, drops, and jumps. Yep. Have you had any close calls or situations that kind of left you shook? Um, definitely. I mean, and in the moment, it never seems like that bad especially since you're going so fast it's usually over pretty quick but um there's definitely been times when you get to the bottom and like most of the time I mean all of us on circuit know each other because we all essentially travel the world together and there's only 20 or so girls that really are at the level of world cup racing and so we all know each other good but we get down to the bottom and we're like oh my gosh, in turn two, like, I was on top of your snowboard, and, like, they're like, yeah, I felt that, I, like, kind of tried to push you off a little, like, so that we both survived, and it's a lot of that, like, I mean, nobody's really out there trying to take each other out in the girl world, the guy world is a lot more savage, <laughs> um, <laughs> they, like, have real feuds and are out there trying to take each other out, but, um, the girls, I think, for the most part, respect each other a lot, uh, and we have so many injuries in general. Nobody is trying to do anything stupid on purpose to hurt anybody, and getting tangled up in any course, it, it, it's hard to stay safe in those situations, so I think girls are a bit more respectful, for sure. Do you have any, I don't know, bales or falls that come to mind? <laughs> yeah unlimited amount <laughs> um, I feel like like I said like getting up to that world cup level is just like it in the lower level norm courses literally the biggest jump would probably be like 30 feet and I got to my first world cup and they had like six 70 foot jumps like 
<laughs> I was mind blown. And <laughs> you crash a lot when you're not used when like everything is just escalated that much. And you go from norms of going like 30 miles an hour to world cups of like 50 miles an hour like it's just it's an entirely different sport and it unfortunately is a hard learning curve and you take a lot of falls um but it's just kind of also part of that perseverance like mindset that you have to have or else you're not gonna last in the sport and I think that is why there's so few girls like on the circuit and like are continuously on the circuit because it's just kind of, you have to be a little like mental and probably stupid <laughs> <laughs> um I, i've taken a lot of good falls i took one in uh switzerland at a world cup like i literally had my entire left butt cheek was black and <laughs> And, like, swollen, and I still have a permanent knot in my butt cheek. But um, I, like, <laughs> did it on the first day of training, and then for the next, like, two race days, fell on it, like, more and more. And uh, my butt was literally black all summer. Um, <laughs> it's that kind of stuff that <laughs> you, just, you just deal with. You know what I thought was interesting that you mentioned a little bit ago? You were talking about how much border cross was watched in the X Games. And yeah. so you have male and female border cross. And to me, that seems pretty um, equal, right? Like, so when you when you watch slope style or men's half pipe and snowboarding, generally more people will watch the men's than the women's. But when you're watching border cross, it seems like everybody watches both of them yeah i think it i mean it's an exciting sport either way um but i think it helps that for one we run the same course like we don't have any different options than the guys we have to do everything that the guys do um which is like sick but also sometimes not that in our favor <laughs> like the guys definitely go faster than us they're bigger they're heavier um and so like sometimes there's jumps that they overshoot and we knuckle and so, like sometimes creating courses for the both of us are hard and they have to make adjustments and figure that out but it also helps that they intertwine us so like the guys don't have a separate competition time than us it's like the first round of men go, the first round of women go, the second round of men go, the second round of women go. So really people don't have a choice but to watch us, which is great for us. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it really is. I mean, it's the same sport. Um, I mean, we're going through the same thing. We're racing the same amount of people. We're still going fast and still scaring ourselves. Like, it's still exciting. Um, so... I think people have respect for that either way. Um, and people mostly understand that they would never get out and do something for that like that. So um, I think people definitely just respect it and are still interested. And it's just an exciting sport in general. Yeah, that's great. I, I completely agree with that. You know, you mentioned the 70-foot jumps. Once you reached that, that next tier of competition – are you the type of person that kind of hesitated and you're you're more thoughtful about it and you're kind of looking at the course or did you just drop straight in? 
I'm a hundred percent like hesitant and thoughtful, which is kind of why I brought up my like previous coach because he had to deal with a hundred percent of all of that like mental, <laughs> um, mental part of me because breaking past that was like really the breakthrough that I had to have to get better results because like I said, every course that we show up to is a new course and you get 30 minutes to look at it and then it's jump in it and go and uh you have to just be able to look at a feature and know like when you come around that corner what you need to do there's no time to think about it and so it's just that gaining that experience and I didn't have that experience for a long time and so it was terrifying and I wanted to watch a bunch of other people do it first so I knew what to do and like you can get really 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 hurt if you drop into a border cross course not knowing what you're doing very Mm -hmm. fast (laughs) Um, and so I think I always had that fear like I want to keep doing what I like to do I don't want to drop in and be stupid and make a bad decision because I didn't know what I was doing kind of thing um so I always overthought it and I actually did a whole bunch of sports psych stuff to kind of almost get over that I kind of had to like eliminate fear and emotion in race mode because if you have any fear or if you have any second thoughts like it's too late you're you're done for mm-hmm. um you kind of just have to be like a blank slate and just let your muscle memory take over and that's the key to survival i think so we talked about your rehabilitation we talked about your training do you feel like at this rate of rehabilitation you'll be ready for the 2022 winter olympics in beijing yeah i think so i don't see anything really stopping me at this point um I obviously have to reintroduce competition this winter and a lot will be told from that um but as far as I can tell at this point um I don't see anything stopping like me pursuing that uh that's definitely the goal in mind I've kind of always had this outlook as long as I've competed is like I don't want any Olympics to define me because kind of like I said before like we have a whole circuit all winter long that we work our asses off um Mm -hmm. competing in and the Olympics is just a single race and while yes it is on the biggest stage in front of the whole world and that's what like everybody kind of makes like the top tier like I've kind of always said I don't want my like athletic career to be defined by Olympics which I'm so glad I had the outlook on because I probably would have been so much more bummed about getting hurt at the Olympics um if I hadn't had that mindset and so I think it's really just like going out and doing my best that I can this winter and preparing for trying to get top results again uh in the oh gosh I can't even get the season straight anymore. So this season is the, t- <laughs> the 1920. Yeah, basically leading. <laughs> I can't like, I don't even know what year it is <laughs> The anymore. roaring 20s. <laughs> <laughs> um, this has been a time vortex of rehab. But uh, basically just leading up to the next Olympics, like I just want to be able to be at the top by then. And I think just setting goals leading up to that um, is the most realistic way to do it. Yeah, that's great. I think that that's, that's a realistic way to go about 
doing most things in life. Yeah, absolutely. I think if you like set one huge goal and fall short of it, it's so much more disappointing than having like a whole bunch of other steps that you took that you were proud of to get there. Um, and I'm very glad that I never had these unrealistic expectations for the Olympics. I think even like once I made the Olympic team, I still had those like, like whatever happens, happens. I'm at the Olympics. Obviously, I want to do as good as I possibly can, but I don't want it to be like a life crushing moment because I feel like a lot of athletes set those expectations and like struggle a lot when it doesn't go exactly how they anticipated. You know, I'm, I'm I'm looking at my my questions, and I've been trying to figure out how I was going to fit this question in. Let's just <laughs> go for it. <laughs> and I think now is probably just as good a time as any. Okay. So your parents used to own a monster truck tour in Denali, right? Yeah. So you mainly lived in Anchorage, and Denali is about four hours outside of Anchorage. How often did you help with the monster truck tours? Uh, yeah, so I was born and raised in Anchorage, but uh, my dad started this monster truck sightseeing business in Denali when I was really young, and so he spent all summer up there, and then me and my mom and um, siblings just kind of went back and forth because he didn't live, like, by anybody. There was no stores. There was nothing. So all summer, we just kind of went back and forth and stayed up there and hung out with him. And then when, like, a town run needed to be made, we'd go back to Anchorage for a few days. And we just did this constant back and forth uh, thing to Denali. And it was just, like, the rule. We didn't do summer sports. We didn't do anything in the summer other than, like, go back and forth, which was great um, because I focused on a lot on winter sports. But uh, also, I just grew up a lot in the woods. Like, we didn't didn't watch TV. Like, we were just out running around. And we had a lot of freedom to go do we want. And I think it made me a lot of who I am today. Um, And I definitely appreciate that. And, like, we definitely... While it was a lot of fun and games, we definitely worked hard, which I think, like, implied a really good work ethic as well, too. So, um, we did what we were asked as much as kids do. (laughs) Um, But it was a really good place to grow up, and I'm really thankful for it, and I definitely miss it a lot now. You know, I like that. You grew up in the woods. (laughs) Yeah, I really did. I mean, I didn't. I grew up in Anchorage, really, but um, we spent a lot of time in the woods. We had cabin we had like a fishing cabin on the dashka too that we spent a lot of time at like we were just always on the go i didn't yeah we were always just in the woods in the summer and it was it was good for us also having grown up kind of in and around the woods i feel like that that kind of unfettered wilderness it teaches you something about you know yourself about perseverance about preservation You know, like there's nobody else out there that is going to help you when you are in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I like it a lot. I liked it even when I was younger. I think like through my teen years, it was a little harder just because I was like trying to start to work and like that kind of stuff. But when I was younger, it was, there's nothing better. I feel like (laughs) that could have, there's no better childhood I could have had because it, it really does teach you so much and you have so many good experiences and like it's funny now because when I look back on it I was like 
oh my gosh, like I was like 14 and my sister was nine and my brother was seven and we would just be like, all right, we're going out for a hike and like take the gun and like go out on a hike. Like, are you allowed to do that? Like, (laughs) (laughs) Um, but it's so, it's so good. Like it really instilled a lot of adventure in me. And I think um, it definitely still resonates with me today I mean I think that's was kind of the hardest part of my injury was like that's how I grew up I always was out doing something always on some kind of adventure and I just got put on my butt and um that was definitely the hardest part so I definitely appreciate my childhood and how unique it was I think it definitely helped with everything can you explain what a monster truck tour is? <laughs> um, so my dad basically took like old Chevy trucks and put tractor tires on them and then opened up like made like a custom open back bed so people could sit in the back outside with like a raised canopy, the covered cam- canopy. Um, and then so he basically found this like old mining road that some miners were like kind of using and um discovered that like he could he was like this is the most beautiful like road ever and we've got to get people out here but the only thing stopping them was rivers and so that's why he created the monster trucks the monster trucks were so that he could go out on this old road into the back gates of denali national park but they had to cross the river, so he made monster trucks. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it's just a day trip. And it was it was so interesting. Like, I loved going out on the tours when I was young. And I was like, I would go out on tours with my dad and be like that annoying seven-year-old that's like, and on your left, you have <laughs> this old collapsed building and like try to do like everything. I was the total entertainer. But um, <laughs> it was, it's so fun. Like, I I nanny now. I'm nannying like for work uh, to supplement around training, and I I find myself they're six and seven, and I find myself constantly like trying to figure out ways that I can like replicate. Like, okay, we have to be outside as much as possible. We have to be active as much as possible, just because I know how much that paid off for me as a kid, and like really how beneficial it was. And I think kids miss out on that a lot these days. Do you have any stories from those monster truck days? Um, I mean, we had like crazy encounters where like one time we parked the truck and a black bear literally just like wandered out of the woods and climbed up on the 65 inch tire and was standing on top of the tire and it's a like open back canopy truck. So the bear just hopped up on the tire and was like, literally a foot away just peering in the back of the truck at all of us like crazy things like that um and I was stalked by a wolf one time (laughs) and there was like a wolf on the highway that was being fed by tourists and it ended up like coming by our cabin quite a few times and I was only like I don't know how old I was somewhere between like seven and nine I was young and uh I like was wandering around by myself and I like was on my four-wheeler and it ran out of gas and uh I was waiting for my dad to come rescue me eventually because he knows he knows when something's wrong he's got that dad sense Mm -hmm. and uh 
I was just sitting on my four-wheeler and this wolf came like wandering out and just basically like stalk like stalk walked up to me and then got to me and just sat and stared at me and I like stood on my four-wheeler and like put my hands up as big as I could because that's what they always tell you like look big right mm-hmm. and I'm like I'm yeah. like I'm the tiniest little girl there's no way to look big um but yeah this wolf just sat and stared at me like basically begging and um thank god my dad had those senses and like came like ripping down the road and the wolf took off but I don't think it would have hurt me but who knows who's to say (laughs) um but yeah just encounters like that where like you don't get that just hanging out in the city (laughs) do you ever think of those situations when you're at the top of the uh the course you know you're at the gate you know racers ready three two one are you thinking this isn't as bad as almost getting eaten by a wolf. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I think like you can reflect and think about that kind of stuff for sure. But in the moment, like your mind is blank. Your mind is it, but it is also a survival feeling. So maybe I just had that ingrained in me from a young age <laughs> because I love that feeling. Um, so. Maybe it was almost getting eaten by animals growing up all the time that <laughs> has me searching for that thrill. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I feel like snowboarding isn't specifically Alaskan, but giving tours of the Alaskan wilderness in a monster truck <laughs> just might be one of the most Alaskan things I've ever heard of. I know. I like growing up whenever anybody was like, what do your parents do? I'm like, you're not even going to believe me when I tell you. <laughs> like, um, It definitely was the most Alaskan-y thing. It was so like my dad lived in a cabin with no water or like bathrooms or anything all summer just running this business. Like it was the most Alaskan thing that you could imagine. <laughs> Did you learn anything out there in the woods, like in nature? that uh, maybe you take with you? I think if anything, it's like you feel the most open-minded and like the least worrisome out in nature. Like no matter what's going on, you feel good when you're out in nature. And I think I even feel that way snowboarding because, um, I mean, it, it... you just feel so good being outside. And I think I really learned that and respected that growing up that like, even though I didn't necessarily want to be there sometimes like through my teen years or whatever, um, it's never a bad time. And I think that's so important moving forward in life because you do go through struggles and you do go through stuff that you don't want to do or times that you just have to push on. But it's so easy to go out and connect with nature, especially in Alaska. I mean, it's literally out your back door, like no matter where you live. Um, it's so it's so easy to go out and reset. And I think that's so important. And I think so many people don't take advantage of it enough. It, it's so good for your mental health and just overall, like your entire health um, to just get outside, even if you're not doing something active, just go outside and breathe fresh air. It's so underrated. (laughs) How do you reset down there in 
Utah? Um, I'm so busy down here that I think just taking like legit time for myself is <laughs> is a good reset for me. And I find myself like even this week, I was feeling very burnt out from being in the gym and rehab. And I've been doing the same thing day in and day out since January, trying to get ready for this season. And I, I mean, it's fine to feel burnt out. It's understandable. Um, so, I mean, I think like setting a goal of being like, okay, I'm going to get through this week of training. And then this weekend, I'm going to get off the grid and go camping. Like, tomorrow I'm going to drive down to the desert and hopefully (laughs) do nothing but actually go explore and get all those worries off my chest and reset and be back Monday morning for another hard training session. I think it's, it's so good to take that time for yourself and people have such a hard time carving it out. I think it's so important that you do it. That's great. I think that pretty much does it for my questions. Um, I'm really happy you're on the road to recovery. Thanks. Me too. I uh, hope I'll have some more happy uh, happy moments here soon. <laughs> Do you have anything else you'd like to add? Um, I don't think so. I think we touched on a lot of stuff that's really important to me. And um, I hope other people find it interesting too. All right. Well, thank you, Rosie. Thanks, Cody. Have a good one. For more information about how you can support local grassroots journalism, go to www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. Crude Conversations is written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Music was produced by Alcoda Beats. 